Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. To those that came yesterday, thank you for being the gospel, as Sabrina said. We, we had the opportunity to to serve an, an elderly lady is the, is the phrase that I'm going to do, where she could not do her own yard work. And so that's one of the things that I love about the city of Surprise is they, we're all a community that helps one another. And so, so once a quarter-ish, I think the city of Surprise does something. And so they asked us if we could help with this lady. So thank you, Stan and Tammy and Jeff and Sabrina and Caden. Caden, he was the muscle the entire time. So it was great. But I'm exhausted. I, I had a birthday this week and I, I'm now old. And so my back hurts after yesterday. Uh, Amy Kellenberger got me a uh, how to survive your 30s kit. And in there was icy hot. And I had to use that yesterday because I was feeling it. So apparently something happens when you have a birthday and you get old. I, I was not anticipating a quick turnaround. They say that this is, it's all downhill from here. So I guess we will, I guess we'll find out. But thanks for being here today. The, uh, last week, we, we started the conversation of, of Jesus's sermon on the mount and, and what it means to truly be a Christian. And I asked last week, if there's a difference between your life and the life of your neighbor, the life of your coworker, those that are not Christian, is there, is there a difference? Can you see a difference in your life than theirs? That was my question last week. And today I want to take that a step further. This is all about what it means to be a Christian or the Christian that Jesus desires and calls us to be, to live like we believe and experience the kingdom of God on a daily basis. And, and I don't know about you, but, but sometimes that's difficult for me. Sometimes it's hard for me to find the time or the desire to spend with Jesus. And maybe that's why they got me the prayer journal, to force me to spend more time with Jesus. But, but sometimes life just gets in the way. And it's, if you think about it, it's kind of crazy. If you really think about how, how we get so busy that, that sometimes it's, just, it's hard to find the time or, or even the desire to just, you know what, I'm, I'm going to fall on my knees in this moment and spend time in prayer, but, but my bed seems so nice or that TV show is calling my name or I, I'm just exhausted and I just, I want to remove all distractions and throw something on, listen to music. But it's crazy when you really think about it because we have the ability to experience the presence of God any time we want to. Jesus died on the cross to make a bridge between us and God so that now we have direct access to the Father. We have direct access to the kingdom of God here and now. And we experience that, that kingdom. We experience the presence of God through, through various different ways. Through prayer is a big one. But other types of means of grace, of being the gospel and sharing the gospel. But yet, for some reason, the, the things in our life that don't really matter seem to become more important than experiencing the kingdom of God. We, and maybe I'll just speak about myself, sometimes I just am too tired to spend with God. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's almost like if we're standing outside 
in the heat of Arizona, 120 degrees, if we are standing outside dying of heat, and right next to us is, is a shaded awning area with misters, and to get out of the heat, all we have to do is take one step over to be in the shade and the coolness of the misters, but yet, but we don't choose to, we stand to be in the misery of the heat. We have the ability to be refreshed by the presence of God. But yet sometimes we choose to stay in the heat, to stay in this miserable area, to, to continue being depressed, to continue in our anxiety, to continue in our just overwhelming feeling when all we have to do is take one step to enter the presence of God, but yet we don't do so. Why? Why is it so hard sometimes to take that step? We get into these cycles of where we're just so exhausted all the time that, that we don't want to do something. And so we rely on coffee. That's me. I live off of coffee and just crave it. And so I wake up in the morning exhausted and I drink more coffee that gives me just enough energy to get by. But then I usually have this big crash later in the day. So then I, I, I fall asleep or I try to keep myself awake. And then I don't sleep very well because I had too much caffeine. And then I just wake up tired and more caffeine. And the cycle keeps continuing. How do we break this cycle? That is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand through his sermon. And, and he starts his sermon. Last week, we talked about the, the purpose, the, the why he was talking about this was to preach the kingdom of God that is coming, that is available here and now. And, and to say that there's a difference between Christians, that, that we should be able to look across the street at a random person and see the fruit in their life and say they're a Christian or they are not. And he does all of this by starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He starts with what are called the Beatitudes. And I want to read those, starting in verse 3. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children. They will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the beginning of Jesus' sermon. It's his intro. Again, the crowds have all gathered around. He walks up on the side of a mountaintop so that everybody can see him and, and hear him. And then he goes and he lists these nine different beatitudes. And I want to split these. So we're going to look at the first half today and then the second half next week. And there are nine of them, nine of these beatitudes. And beatitude is a word that, that we don't commonly use today. And it means blessedness or to be blessed. But it's not so much about being blessed by outside circumstances, but, but rather how we think and feel. And we can break up this word to help with this. It'll be on the screen. We can take beatitude and break it up to be attitude. In other words, it's when we be an attitude of blessedness. It's when we have an attitude of being 
blessed be attitude. And Jesus gives us nine of them, and some of them are based on circumstances, but most of them are based on our perception or our thinking about those things, based on our attitude towards the circumstances. And it's also really interesting that that the first and last beatitude have the kingdom of heaven as the reward. And again, if you remember from last week, this is the main focus for Jesus, to inherit the kingdom. So he starts and ends by stating that if you do these things, you will inherit the kingdom of God. It starts and ends, which probably means that all of the middle also has to do in some way or another with the kingdom of God in some way. And again, the kingdom is the presence of God. But there's also irony in this, because what, what is prized in heaven is, it seems to be the complete opposite of what we would think about in this world. The world associates blessed with success, where we are free from our daily worries, where we have money or however else you define success. I mean, how, how do you define blessed? If you think in your mind, how would you define blessed or success? What would you picture in your mind if you think of somebody that is successful? For me, I picture an individual wearing a business suit, carrying around a really cool briefcase, filled with lots and lots and lots of money. They have no worries. They have a nice house, a nice family. They don't have to worry about anything. They are just, they're blessed. They are successful in America. But Jesus flips this upside down. Jesus says to be blessed in the kingdom means that we are poor. We mourn. We are meek. We are hungry and thirsty. He says that these qualities or these attitudes, which can seem very negative, which can seem undesirable, these are where a person can find complete contentment or complete blessedness. These are what lead us into the presence of God, into the kingdom of God. But how could these possibly provide us with blessedness? The first one is 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 being poor in spirit. Verse three, poor in spirit. This is the first beatitude. Again, an attitude of being. It's our mindset of being poor. And when we think of poor, we think of begging, destitute, needy. And Jesus applies this concept of of begging or being poor to the spiritual states of the believer. So to be poor in the spirit means that we're in a state of spiritual inadequacy. We are spiritually in need. But there's more. Those that are poor in spirit are those who are are spiritually bankrupt and utterly dependent upon God for daily living. Imagine if you had absolutely no money, you were completely bankrupt and you relied upon the government for support to get by in daily living. That is what Jesus is saying here, that we must be poor in spirit and rely on God for daily living, which initially seems odd, Because it goes against the American culture, the American way of of building up our own success. Jesus says to be blessed means that we remain poor and dependent on God. And the reason for this is that we must realize that we can't do it on our own 
and that we need to be dependent upon God. Think of it like climbing a mountain. If you were going to go climb a mountain today after church, how much would you take with you to hike up this mountain? Would you wear your high heels and your dress? Kurt's like, no, no way. I sure hope not. Would you, would you carry around a, a huge backpack? Would you bring your purse full of change? I wish Jill was here today because she has like 50 pounds worth of change that she carries around. Would you bring all that with you? Would you carry a suitcase with all of your belongings to climb up a mountain? I hope not. Instead, you would only take what you need to climb the mountain and you would leave all of your other possessions behind. You would wear the appropriate shoes and clothes. You would take water and just the essentials that you would need. But you would leave everything else that you have behind. In other words, you would climb that mountain poor in equipment or poor in things. And the process of discipleship is like this. We are all climbing a mountain. And to do that, we must be poor in spirit. We must leave behind all of our baggage, all of the things that don't matter, the things that the world tells us are valuable but aren't valuable in the end. They're not helpful for our journey. We must approach this mountain of discipleship poor. And when we do that, we will have what we need to climb to the top of the mountain. We must become poor in spirit if we want to be blessed and inherit the kingdom of God. We must appear poor and strange to the world because that is what it means to live like Christ. Being poor means that we only take what we need and we rely on God for the rest. And before we move on, I think this is important to stop here and to ask yourselves, are you poor in spirit? We have all come to this mountain. We're all at different stages. Some of us are at the very beginning. We're at the trailhead that leads to the mountain. First time seeking all of this out. Some of us are farther up the mountain. Some of us have been climbing the mountain for many, many years. Are you doing it poor in spirit? Or are you trying to carry some old baggage with you? Carrying past hurt, past anger, temptation, or sin with you? Are you carrying around the worries from this world, focused on things that, that don't matter, focused on all the distractions that we talked about last week, so much so that you're struggling to make it up this mountain because you're lugging that suitcase, your baggage behind you? And some of you in this moment might be thinking, it could just be me, but thinking that, that following Jesus seems like hard work, and you are right. It is hard work. It's supposed to be hard work. Jesus' entire sermon that we are looking at and the rest of what he teaches, his entire life teaches us and tells us that it is hard work. It is hard to be a disciple of Christ in this world. He says to be a disciple, we must be willing to carry our cross on a daily basis. And remember that the cross in that time was the symbol of death. He says that it's easier for a camel to travel through the eye of a teeny tiny little needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom. It is not easy, and that's exactly the point. I asked this earlier why we struggle to find time to focus on God, and I think this is part of the answer. We are so focused on lugging that suitcase with us 
that we're just worn out all of the time. We rely on coffee to give us a little boost or energy drinks. If your dad was here, he lives off of those energy drinks just to get by because we're carrying that luggage. Not saying your dad's carrying luggage, but we are carrying that luggage. Mike, if you're watching online, I promise I'm not making fun of you. We are so focused on our distractions that we are just worn out all of the time. And the call for us is to leave our baggage at the bottom of the mountain, at the foot of the cross, so that we can carry it poor in spirit. But then Jesus, Jesus moves on. The next two that he mentions, the next two Beatitudes in verses 4 and 5 are, are those that are mourn, that those that mourn and those that are meek. And these are both attitudes or, or perspectives and responses to the things that happen around us. We are to mourn over situations that need mourning, which could be all kinds of different things. It could be about the baggage in our life. We should mourn over that baggage. It could be the sin in our life that we should mourn over. It could be mourning over those that, that don't know Jesus yet. But then he says that we are also to be meek, and meek usually references weakness. He says that we need to be weak, but, but yet later Jesus actually calls himself meek, later in Matthew chapter 11. And we know that he wasn't weak, but instead what, what he means by this is being friendly or, or being mild or calm, where we don't overreact to situations. We're not easily angered, but yet we are calm. And again, both of these are our responses to circumstances. We cannot control what things happen to us. However, we can control how we respond to them. Jesus first says that we must become poor in spirit. We need to leave our baggage behind. And then we must begin to change our attitudes and the ways that we respond to the circumstances around us. But again, the question is, how do we do this? How do we actually do that? Which leads us to the next one in verse 6. The fourth beatitude that he mentions is to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And this is part of the solution. The answer to being poor in spirit is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and myself and most Americans don't fully understand the desperation of, of being hungry and thirsty. We may say that we are starving when we miss a meal or it's been a couple of hours since we've eaten, but, but most of us don't know what true hunger is like. Some of us might, but most of the country does not know what true starvation is like. There's a guy named Tony Hall, and many years ago, he, he did a three-week fast where he fasted from food and water for three weeks in order to better, better understand what people go through that are starving in order to bring awareness to that. And he, he journaled, he wrote about it, and what he discovered is that his worst hunger was in the first week. After that, his body just grew ambivalent to food. He, he, he didn't want to eat anymore. He was so hungry that he just didn't want to eat. He didn't want to drink. His body was just slowly wasting away. And if we apply that to our spiritual life, it means that when we start off poor in spirit, we leave everything else off 
And if we hunger and thirst for God, that first week is where we need to continue to feed our body. If we go too long, if we experience a full week without feeding our souls on God, then our souls, our spirit begins to grow calloused or hardened towards God. We find ourselves more depressed. If we go a week without reading our Bible, a week without praying, our souls start to starve, but then it turns into this where we just, I just, I don't want to do it today. Like, yeah, I'm craving it, but I just, you know, I don't want to. I'm not in the mood. I'm just depressed. And then you get into this cycle that is hard to break out of because we are so hungry for God that we're just not hungry anymore. But yet Jesus says, no, remain in that hunger. Stay in that first week. Continue to feed your soul on the righteousness of God. And so if we combine all four of these together, here's what we see. To be blessed We must first empty ourselves of everything that doesn't matter. Get rid of the baggage. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of our our faulty focus, our desires for earthly success. And second, through our attitudes and responses, we, we should start to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. And when we do those things, we will find that we are blessed. Another way to say it or to think about it is that that blessedness comes with the degree to which we partake of God's holiness. Blessedness comes. We experience blessedness to the degree that we experience God's holiness. The more of God's holiness that we strive for, that we want to experience, the more blessed we will feel and be. Holiness can only be attained through the transformation of character. When we begin to change the way that we think, the way that we act, when we begin to start this process of transformation, and this is what Jesus is talking about. He says we need to be transformed. We need to get rid of all of our old self. The old has been gone. A new creation has come. Get rid of all that old baggage. Begin to slowly change the way that you think. Change the way that you respond to different situations while being hungry and thirsty for God and feeding your soul on him. But again, how do we actually do that? How do we change the way that we think? How do we break the cycles, especially when we're in weeks two and three where it's harder for us to go back and feed? Are you familiar with erosion? Do you remember that in school? Erosion, water erosion. The concept is fairly simple. The, the rocks and the ground of the earth, the earth is a solid form that is, it is what it is. But over time, rocks can be broken down by water and winds, and then eventually water will come through and move them out of the way to change the landscape. Scientists will tell you that most of the canyons that we have come from erosion. They started as as one solid, but over time, water and other weathering processes break it down and change the landscape into something new. And again, the process is this. The, The earth has a solid form, has a certain landscape that is not easily changeable. But over time, as you work on it, Piece by piece, it goes through the process of weathering and erosion, and that process leads to almost a permanent change to the landscape. Now apply that concept to our minds. Our minds at this very moment have a landscape. 
And that landscape looks different from person to person. We all have a way that we act, a way that we think, a way that we see the world. We all have different ways that we respond to different things. We all have different behaviors and habits. And those things are very difficult to change. It is very difficult to break free from old habits because it's the landscape of our mind. It's how we are. And if we want to change those things, then we have to go through a process of erosion, of weathering and erosion, which means that we have to break down certain areas, that we have to go through a process of of cleansing or removal, which will lead to a change in the landscape of our mind. This is how we reshape our mind. And this is what psychologists tell us too. There's been so much advancement over the last hundred plus years in the field of neuroscience. And scientists and psychologists understand more about how the brain works and how to overcome certain things. And what they have found is exactly what I just described. Our brains have to be reformed and reshaped. They have done research that shows that our our thoughts control or form our emotions, and our emotions form our behaviors. So the way that we think determines the way that we feel, all of our emotions, and our emotions are what determine what actions we take, our behaviors. So if you want to change your behavior, you start with the thought. This is what psychologists do to help people overcome all kinds of different mental health things. They do this to treat anxiety, depression. This is what they do to treat PTSD. They change the thoughts. They help you reshape your mind. But what I love most about this this recent discovery is that it's not a recent discovery. The Bible has been telling us this for over 2,000 years But science is now slowly catching up and saying, hey, we found this new great discovery. I bet somebody won a Nobel Prize for their newest greatest discovery that the Bible has been telling us for years. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at this coming at his coming, meaning we have to have control over our minds in order to choose to focus on hope and grace. Again, it starts with the thought, with our mind to choose to focus on hope, which is our emotion feeling hopeful, which then changes our behavior. And Paul takes this further by saying that we are at war in our minds. He says in Romans 7, 23, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work with me. And to fight it, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We fight this war by controlling our thoughts. If we take every thought captive, we change our emotions. 
which changes our behaviors, which begin to change the landscape in our mind. He continues Romans 12, 2, that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Romans 8, 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The Bible has been telling us for thousands and thousands of years about the power of our minds. They understood that we are at war in our minds. They understood that that we must find a way to control our thoughts in order to reshape our minds and be transformed into the image of Christ. But this is not easy. And part of the reason that this is so difficult that, that it's so difficult to find time focusing on God is because of this war, this spiritual war that is going on in our minds. I mean, really think about it. I said earlier that we have the ability to enter into the presence of God in the throne room of heaven anytime we want to by experiencing him through prayer, through means of grace. Combine that with the truth that we are all in spiritual warfare that takes place in our mind. And we can easily come to the conclusion that our our thoughts are extremely important. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. Our thoughts are extremely important. Our thoughts control our emotions and our emotions control our actions. Therefore, our thoughts are what bring us to the presence of God. So think about it. If you are Satan and you wanted to keep as many people as you can away from God as possible, to keep them away from experiencing the presence of God, wouldn't you go straight for their minds? Wouldn't you begin to place doubt in their minds? Wouldn't you begin to throw distraction after distraction, as many as you could to keep people from spending time with God? You would attack their minds. Satan learned from Job that you can't just attack the outside of somebody. It doesn't work. You need to attack the inside. This is why it can be so difficult for us to seek the presence of God in our lives because we are at war. We see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus never fought with his fists, but he did fight with his mind. The Gospels tell us of the, of the great trial, his, his time of temptation with Satan when he was fasting, all of which Jesus had to fight by controlling his thoughts. Satan was after his mind, after the way that Jesus was thinking. He was tempting him. He was doubting him. It was a war going on, a battle of the minds. Jesus continues this battle with his mind against the Pharisees. He doesn't fight with his fists. He fights with his mind. Even before he was arrested in the garden, he was praying and crying out to God, asking if there was any other way. He says, please, God, take this cup from me. But then he says, but not my will, but yours. In that moment, Jesus was controlling his thought. He was changing his thought. He he had a thought in that moment that led to this emotion of, of God. 
I don't want to go through this. I don't want to experience this suffering. Is there any other way? Which led to his behavior of falling to his knees and praying and begging God, please. But then he does something special. In that moment, rather than just stopping there, crying and complaining, he goes back to his thought and he changes it. And he says, but Father, not my will, but yours. And that simple change of a thought changed his emotion that in the garden, when Peter pulls out the sword and cuts the guy's ear off, he says, calm down. Calm down. Just be calm. He heals the man's ear. And he walks through the greatest suffering ever because he changed his thought. This is what Jesus is telling us, that we are blessed when we are poor in spirit. When we leave our baggage behind, leave all of the weights behind, because when we do that, it's easier for us to control our minds. And we are blessed when we can control our minds and our, our reactions, our responses to things, when we can mourn, when we can be meek. And when we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. All of these things have to do with our minds. We remove the baggage of our life and become poor. And that baggage looks different for everybody. It could be sin. It could be idols. It could just be a misplacement of focus. To get rid of these things, we must begin the process of renewing our mind. Begin the process of erosion and breaking down those things and cleansing them. We need to break them down and clean them out. But the good news that I have for you this morning is that that is not done on our own. That is done by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Holy Spirit cleanses us. Jesus, the living water, like the water in erosion, Jesus, the living water cleanses us. It starts with our mind. It starts with our thought. As Paul says, we must take every thought captive. We must begin to see life differently in order to start living differently. To do that, we first need to leave our baggage behind to become poor in spirit so that we can hunger and thirst for more of God. We must see the kingdom flipped upside down. We must be hungry and thirsty for God in our lives. It's not an easy process, but it is doable. And it just starts with one thought. Just starts by changing one thought at a time. By saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever that thought is for you, Sometimes those thoughts lead us to a state of depression where, we're, where we live in this doubt, where, where Satan speaks into our minds and says, you're not good enough. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares. You can't do this. And then we begin to believe that. And that starts to affect our emotions where we say, I'm not good enough. I don't feel this. And then you start to read into every situation where, oh, that person didn't say hi to me, that they must not like me anymore. And that leads to the behaviors of, of shutting yourself out. Of, of, of being self-conscious, of not 
walking into what God is calling you to be, but we can break that cycle by going back and changing the thought and saying, no, Satan, no, I am loved. God loves me. God loved me so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. Satan, get out of my head. You change that one thought and it changes your emotion. You say, I I am chosen, I am loved, I am created for a purpose. And that changes your behavior to start living emboldened to be and share the gospel. It starts by changing one thought. It's not easy. You have to recognize that you're in that cycle. And change that one thought. Take every thought captive. We start with one thought, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin breaking it down, removing it from our lives, and we begin to change the landscape of our mind, where soon that doubt, those lies, are no longer there. And it's now this new landscape, this new waterfall in our mind that is just pouring out the living water of Christ. But it requires us to acknowledge those thoughts and hold them out for God to remove them from us. It requires us to be hungry and thirsty for God rather than the things of this world. Pray with me. Father, we want to hunger and thirst for you. In this moment, Father, I ask that you make known our baggage, the sin in our lives, the things that you want us to to let go of, to leave at the bottom of the mountain. And then, Father, give us the, the power, the ability to take every thought captive, to be poor in spirit and to hunger and thirst for you. Father, I believe that you are waiting to pour yourself into us, to cleanse us. Give us the courage to let you in, to go through the process of changing our minds. Father, we want to be transformed into your image. Father, I pray for our church. As the body of Christ, you use the language that that, that the church is the body. And in the same way, we must be renewed. We must be transformed as the body of Christ. So Father, will you pour into this place? Will you break us down as a church? As a local church and as a global church, Father, would you lead us to a place of renewal and revival across America, across the world? Would we be changed and refocused? Would we be hungry and thirsty for you? Give us that passion. Father, we are hungry and thirsty for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnazchurch or our website, rnaz.church.